Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your man. This man is my land. California. The New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream Waters. This man was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 461, recorded on Sunday, February 26, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week's episode is the, quote, employee-owned, end quote, Chicago and Northwestern Railway, hype versus reality. In the United States, it is common for employees of a corporation to own shares of stock in the company. This has been a practice to some degree since the 19th century, often originally in lieu of pensions, but it has become especially prevalent with employee stock options as contract incentives, particularly at tech companies. Beginning in the late 1960s and with 1970s tax reforms, there was a bit of an ideological push, as we'll discuss, to encourage employee stock ownership or even employee takeovers of privately held companies, which is going to be the subject of today's episode. Now, we'll talk more about the wider push later after examining today's focus company, but it's important that we think about this as an example of a broader trend that was happening in the same time period. Of course, as I alluded to with talking about tech companies, employee stock ownership remains a hot-button topic uh, even to uh, much more recent years. Rachel? Yeah, more recently, Bernie Sanders and other progressives have at times proposed institutionalizing a percentage ownership requirement in major corporations. His plan, which we'll link to in the show notes, involved a permanent employee trust with elected representation to act as a block for voting shares, as a mechanism for sharing profits and windfalls to the workers. However, ownership of some amount of stock in the company, whether in trust or individually, should not be confused with true employee ownership or control of management. It is not the same as co-determination, where representatives of the company workforce sit on the board of directors and make decisions with the other directors, although some candidates like Sanders propose that too. Stock ownership by employees is certainly not the same as a co-op either. And it is also important to bear in mind, as we have often noted, that there is a stratification within the broad category of company employees, not all of which hold the same class position, alignments, or objectives within a company. Broadly, there are owners and upper managers, and there are wage and salary workers, but there are also fuzzier middle management type white collar roles within the company that are more highly compensated and often given shares of stock in the company, even if they don't actually control it in order to align their interests towards profit and performance. Ownership of shares can confuse and muddle the relative position and interests of various company employees without actually increasing their managerial control of the company's decisions or even merely improving labor conditions. In this episode, we look at the cautionary example of a U.S. railroad that was bought out by some of its own employees in the 1970s, adopting the proud branding employee-owned for several years, 
and we find that the hype did not live up to the reality upon closer inspection and as events unfolded. The main source this week is the book The Northwestern, A History of the Chicago and Northwestern Railway System by H. Roger Grant, the esteemed railroad historian, published in 1996. So this is the company we'll be looking at this week. And again, despite the employee-owned branding, you're going to see that that is a bit misleading for what actually happened. Uh, And then we'll talk about how this fits into the broader landscape of what was happening in American capitalism and the corporate world at the time. In many ways, this is actually a good example of what was going on at the time. The Chicago and Northwestern Railway was one of the early railroads into the Wild West from Chicago in the 19th century, and it remained focused, even into the later 20th century, on raw commodities from the Great Plains and Mountain West, like timber and grain. In the 1950s, new ownership and management enacted comprehensive reforms and reorganization of the struggling Chicago-based freight and commuter railroad, including some union busting, specifically telegraph operators, but also, they made a huge amount of investment in upgrades and maintenance after years of deferral. This did turn things around for the railroad, going from a cumulative net income of negative $17.5 million from 1956 through 1962 to a net income for just 1965 of positive $16 million, a 20-year high. But by the mid-1960s, the era of diversified conglomerate holding companies had arrived, and the ownership decided to branch out into acquiring other unrelated industries under the banner Northwest Industries. Within a few more years, they further decided that they were no longer interested in the railroad industry at all, and they wanted to divest the original company altogether. By 1969, a sale was being floated when rail revenues began dropping into losses again. Quote, Ben Heineman, the owner of the company at the time, recognized the difficulties of confronting railroad regulation. Nevertheless, he understood how to cope with and even to manipulate the regulatory processes. He concluded by the mid-1960s that a better way to increase shareholder value would come not from modernization and mergers, but from investments outside the transportation sector. Profits for the railroad were limited at best. The industry seemed unable to alter labor regulations, pricing, and related regulatory matters. Quote, to put it simply, Heinemann told the business press, I've been discontented with the railroad industry and its long-range outlook under present circumstances because its rate of returns is disgustingly inadequate, end quote. By 1966, Northwest Industries, that's the holding company, was making after-tax profits of nearly $24 million from their non-rail holdings. If you were a shareholder just looking to make money steadily, why would you even bother with operating a railroad anymore? One thing the railroad had not done during the reform years of the late 1950s and early 1960s was much in the way of abandonment of minor lines that were increasingly in competition with highway trucking. Not only that, but despite the regulatory approval hurdles, the railroad had taken to mergers and acquisitions of other railroads with enthusiasm, growing significantly despite the pre-existing financial problems. The vision, which was never fully realized, was that the Chicago and Northwestern would become the hegemonic railroad of the middle of the country between Chicago and the Mountain West, south of a planned hegemon mega-merger, the Burlington Northern, where there were a lot of competing and redundant railroads undercutting each other for business. Ultimately, the railroad became embroiled in a protracted territorial struggle with the much larger and better-resourced Union Pacific, which was trying to finally extend east of the Missouri River to Chicago. 
As rail revenues began to collapse again after those few bright years in the early to mid-1960s, the railroad returned to its old habits of deferring maintenance and letting things slide into disrepair. Rail workers became increasingly frustrated. Nobody really seemed interested in buying the railroad from the holding company. Chicago Northwestern Railway President Larry Provo, who had a good relationship with the unions, approached both the unions and the owners with a creative proposal, a leveraged buyout of the railroad by its employees. On October 5, 1970, Northwest Industries entered into an agreement with the Northwestern Employees Transportation Company, or NETCO, to sell substantially all of the assets of the Chicago and Northwestern Railway Company. For a modest sum, $19 million, to be paid over a 20-year period and the assumption of the $340 million in company debt, the railroad would become an employee-owned corporation. Quote, the employees are getting what must be the cheapest railroad in history, concluded a financial writer. They are paying little more than $100 a year per mile of ra- railroad track, end quote. NWI would walk away from an unwanted operation with $200 million of tax credits that it could use to offset profits from its many subsidiaries. For a sense of comparison to the rail assets they were divesting to employees, the rest of the holding company was sold 15 years later for $1.4 billion, with a B, dollars. At the time of the sale, the railroad had 14,000 employees, and any employee was permitted to buy up to $100,000 worth of stock. Apparently among those who took advantage of this maximum were some of the union leaders who endorsed the takeover, although not all unions endorsed the plan as necessarily requiring a confusing labor relations status inside the new firm. In reality, however, not all employees joined the purchase, and the participants skewed toward the management employees and the higher higher compensated union workers and non-union white-collar workers. The minimum buy-in was $500. Some workers with first-hand knowledge of the poor state of repair on the railroad chose not to invest, fearing it was a money pit. And of course, a lot of them just wouldn't have had $500 or much more lying around anyway, even if they had been interested in buying in. Correct. The Interstate Commerce Commission granted official approval to the employee takeover on June 1, 1972. The railroad was now the Chicago Northwestern Transportation Company. It was at least nominally employee-owned, although the reality was more complicated. By 1981, less than 40% of CNWT company stock was still owned by employees, and the railroad decided to drop the phrase employee-owned from official branding. The first order of business in mid-1972, although it would take quite a few more years to obtain the necessary regulatory approvals, was to begin closing down low-profit lines finally. As early as 1973, the railroad seemed to actually be doing surprisingly well, actually posting profits, and the share price had climbed many times over and the board of directors split the stock in an effort to encourage more of the employees to buy in. The price of the newly split shares continued to climb several times over throughout the 1980s. During this period, thousands of miles of track were discontinued. Much of this track was pre-World War I and was in dire and dangerous condition. A lot of the physical infrastructure was in such bad shape by the 1970s that it wasn't even worth much, if anything, to rip up and sell or reuse for materials. The railroad repeatedly argued, over rural public opposition, that cargo could be trucked over these medium distances, from low-density agricultural producers to more arterial railroad loading stations for long-distance hauling to market. Research by Iowa State University and the Iowa DOT suggested that upgrades to major line capacity in line with this strategy probably would actually improve overall economic conditions for the state and its farmers, 
without harming the local communities and for losing direct rail access. The abandonment process for smaller rural lines sped up dramatically with federal deregulation of railroads in 1980. The new management forged a much more positive and collaborative relationship with Union Pacific, becoming its primary partner for access into Chicago, which boosted through traffic for both railroads. In the mid-1970s, with the health of the railroad industry as a whole seemingly on the brink of catastrophe in the United States, Congress had established a number of emergency programs to directly fund or offer loan assistance for infrastructure repairs and upgrades. The CNW took advantage of these new programs and parlayed upgrades on key sections into new revenues and savings that could be applied to other problem sections or yards. The dire conditions of track maintenance on important arteries were gone by the early 1980s. Federal loan guarantees also helped the railroad repair thousands of damaged freight cars at a cheaper cost than buying new ones would have involved. Larry Provo, who had envisioned and executed the leveraged employee purchase of the railroad, passed away in October 1976, just a few years after the ICC approval had gone through. There was a seamless transition just before Provo's death to James Wolfe, who had previously served as the railroad's vice president for labor relations prior to the takeover by the employees when he became vice president of operations. The two had worked closely together on the new employee-owned railroad management strategy in those early years, and he continued the plans essentially unchanged. Although, as we've said, the reality of it was that it was a pretty narrow strata of employees who bought in on the initial uh, down payment for the leveraged buyout, and so very uh, little of the broader uh, employee workforce of the company was actually invested in the railroad Uh, And certainly they didn't have uh, operational control of the board or anything like that. The company, which had been sold to its own employees for just $19 million in the early 1970s, ended the 1970s by selling its entire Chicago commuter rail fleet to the newly created Regional Transit Authority for $20.8 million. And remember, that was $19 million uh, purchase price spread out over 20 years. So again, a ridiculously low price uh, with which to buy a railroad on credit. The railroad continued to operate the commuter service for Chicago, but as a mere operational contractor for the RTA. The CNW, Union Pacific, and Burlington Northern engaged in a joint project to extend and physically strengthen a seemingly insignificant line into Wyoming's Powder River Basin coal country, which was previously largely untapped up to that point. New environmental regulations suddenly made Wyoming's coal more economically attractive than coal in historically more significant mining regions in the U.S. This fateful infrastructure investment decision and the resulting long, slow hopper trains of nothing but Wyoming coal ended up generating massive coal traffic profits for all involved, even if it required significant improvements to be viable. This was primarily a Burlington Northern project, but the federal government had forced them into a joint arrangement with the CNW, and when the CNW struggled to come up with the funding for the necessary infrastructure upgrades to support the heavy coal trains, their new friends at the Union Pacific stepped in to join the project, mostly in a financing role, despite their rivalry with BN. Joint ownership over the single line saved everyone infrastructure costs in a challenging physical environment, but still maintained competition to keep regulators and customers happy. The CNW had actually been studying the feasibility of this new coal exploitation effort since 1973, and ground was finally broken in 1983, ten years later, with coal trains beginning operations in August 1984. 
Various power companies around the country signed lucrative long-term contracts for entire trainloads of coal to be delivered directly from Wyoming to specific facilities. This was mimicked later in the 1980s with dedicated contracts to deliver unit trains of ore to steel mill customers. One key step in facilitating the Chicago and Northwestern's embrace of massive bulk commodity unit trains like coal dated back to 1971, when the employees were still awaiting regulatory approval to buy the railroad. The management team negotiated with the unions for a new model of crewing this type of train load because it was simpler and traveled longer distances without being reorganized than traditional mixed freight train consists or short train consists. This was used first over a decade before the Powder River coal unit trains were underway to move 20 to 25 car rock trains with fewer crew members per train journey, in exchange for which the growth in business would be so substantial that there would be even more jobs for the union crew members. This is similar to the effect seen with containerization of port facilities, which we covered in our series on that topic, whereby massive labor efficiencies being achieved per ship actually vastly increased the total volume of shipping traffic, creating more jobs in the early adopter seaports. During the 1980s, despite the pruning back of minor lines in the 1970s, the CNW continued to emphasize a focus on serving grain producers west of the Mississippi River, as it had always done. Acquisitions and mainline upgrades were often geared towards strengthening arterial service of fast and vast grain shipments, especially in Iowa. The railroad soon applied the new labor logic of the unit trains carrying rocks to unit trains carrying grain. They also reached a deal with agribusiness giant Cargill in the early 1980s to cancel planned abandonment of a line and instead have Cargill, a shippers association, and certain government agencies loan money to refurbish the line so that Cargill could ship 10,000 carloads per year of unit trains from agricultural producers to their plant near Eddyville, Iowa. The line in this system became such a success that some of Cargill's peer businesses began relocating plants to the line as well for efficiency. As a side note, about a decade later, Family-owned Cargill also became partially employee-owned, according to Wikipedia. However, by the annual meeting of June 1985, shareholders voted to create a diversified holding company, tentatively returning to the situation from which the railroad had emerged into employee ownership in the first place back in 1972. These hesitant diversifications were outside of rail, but still relevant to the core business of the railroad. For example, the railroad was a major timber carrier and the new holding company purchased a manufacturer of snowplows and log splitters. They flipped this acquisition just a couple of years later at a profit and used that sale to pay off some high interest financing on the balance sheet. Another acquisition was an intermodal brokerage service, which was intended to advance a partnership with Union Pacific to run intermodal trains from Chicago straight through to points west. CNW was a more enthusiastic adopter of shipping container train traffic than many peer railroads had been. In 1984, it became possible to run a double-stack container train filled with East Asian imports from a U.S. West Coast port over the Union Pacific, across the CNW through Chicago, and onto Conrail for delivery to the U.S. East Coast. The double-stacks were just 30% heavier than a single-stack train, but with twice the cargo capacity. In 1985 and 1986, the CNW expanded their handling capacity in Chicago for container trains, increasing weekly round trips across the continent from 8 to 14, and then eventually in 1988 to 38. The 1992 annual report boasted that despite the relatively lower revenues of cheap container tra cargo traffic, the profit margins were actually quite high on them because their operating costs were even lower. 
So again, despite some of the increased business that they got through unit trains of ore, coal, grain, uh, or running these double stack container trains, uh, and these additional trips did create more job opportunities, the overall push, despite the uh, you know so-called employee ownership that began in the early 1970s, was con or continued to be trying to reduce the uh, amount of labor costs and labor assignments per sort of uh, crew load. And in on balance, that meant that although there were some opportunities where there was growth in jobs, uh, overall, the push was in the opposite direction, uh, which again speaks to the reality that this employee ownership was not uh, true employee ownership in any meaningful sense of the word in terms of the workforce. Uh, it was primarily uh, stock ownership by upper management types, and I guess some people might say labor aristocracy types, uh, but mostly this was a, a pretty narrow set of people that bought in, and then a lot of them sold off as well, uh, and they certainly never had ordinary workers in any meaningful control of the board of directors. Uh, during this uh, period in the 70s and especially the 1980s, computerization eliminated hundreds of jobs. Uh, I think a lot of those were some of the more uh, white-collar and office-type jobs. Um, many railroad crews at the time were at the state level instead of the federal level and had existed since the early 20th century, if not earlier, uh, and those had not been updated for modern diesel trains. Post-war reforms did eventually tackle some of these in various states. Uh, by 1972, only Wisconsin and Arkansas were still considered hopelessly out of date. Wisconsin did reform at that point, too, which benefited the CNW in terms of cutting labor costs. The reform bill was submitted as a joint compromise between representatives of industry management and in industry unions, whereby excess rail workers, particularly firemen, would not be laid off immediately, but would also not be replaced when they did leave. However... Uh, just because these reforms allowed for certain things that had previously been uh, proscribed by law, they still had to uh, fight uh, quite a protracted battle between management and the unions uh, to be able to implement a lot of these workforce reductions. Like many railroads today, the CNW management back in the 1980s insisted that they could safely operate most trains in most scenarios with a single crew member, and kept trying to lobby for reducing crews from four to two or even one. CNW and the United Transportation Union held unsuccessful bargaining sessions in 1987 and into 1988 to address the crew size and mandatory early retirement questions. A federal mediation board was appointed to force a resolution. Eventually, the union went on strike in September 1988, but Congress, as they did very recently at the end of 2022, intervened within a matter of hours to end the strike and force a compromise of three-person crews in most cases and two-person crews in select cases determined by arbitration instead of crews of four or one. Additionally, the congressional package mandated an early retirement buyout for redundant workers. Negotiations between the CNW management and the UTU continued into 1991 for further crew reduction agreements and voluntary early retirements, which were concluded successfully. So all of this really did add up to quite a uh, noticeable trajectory here. The CNW workforce back in 1981, which was already uh, sort of toward the tail end of the period when they were even pretending to be uh, employee-owned, the workforce size uh, you know, across all the different occupations within the railroad company, uh, had been 14,345, and that number was down to just 6,841 by 1991. 
A company official in 1986 acknowledged that worker morale on the railroad was quite low amid all these cuts, redundancies, and line abandonments, and that management was viewed as, quote, cruel and rather heartless, end quote. In 1985, senior management got really into something called Total Quality Improvement System, which was a new philosophy of business management they picked up at a seminar, which emphasized listening more to employees about how things could be done better. Interesting to implement that uh, basically a decade and a half after proposing an employee takeover of the railroad. Uh, it was regarded with some contempt by the workers, but also did seem to result in more feedback to management. And, quote, the number of company investigations of employee conduct significantly decreased, end quote, before the TQI system was sidelined just a few years later in 1988 under new leadership. After federal deregulation, more than 1,000 miles of quote-unquote marginally profitable branch lines, as opposed to money-losing branch lines slated for abandonment or pre-deregulation minor lines, whether profitable or not, were sold off to short-line operators who were under less restrictive crew-level mandates and often completely non-union, allowing them to continue service on the lines at a higher profit margin and still send business to, to the CNW's main lines. These independent but captive short-line operators were also often showered with state assistance to keep branch lines running. The third president of the CNW in the employee ownership era was Robert W. Schmieg, the hand-picked successor to the hand-picked successor, taking over in 1988. Like his predecessor, Wolf, he was also formerly the railroad's vice president for labor relations. He was reportedly more of a consensus-oriented manager as the new president. Unfortunately, by 1987, even with all the unit trains of commodities and the double-stacked transcontinental container trains, the railroad was in crisis again, potentially on the verge of implosion, although this time due to external forces instead of internal factors. Because the railroad had failed to become hegemonic in its geographic territory and had failed in several merger and acquisition attempts to nearby rivals, the CNW found itself very vulnerable to rate wars between some of the nearby railroads, who entered a revenue race to the bottom to attract customers. In 1987 and 1988, the railroad contemplated a near-total liquidation of all routes and assets for everything except the two critical moneymaker lines bridging between other, bigger railroads, the Wyoming Coal Line and the connection between Chicago and Omaha, which would have been a massive one-time windfall for shareholders at the expense of having much of a railroad left afterward. This plan was only thwarted by the anticipated cost of retiring that many workers early under generous severance agreements. The rate war finally ended and the Wyoming coal traffic continued to boom, bringing the railroad back from the brink by the end of 1988. Now, employee ownership of the CNW could have expanded significantly once more in 1989, when in fact union employees of 16 unions on the railroad as a group offered to buy one-third of the common stock of the company in order to fend off corporate raiders who were attempting a hostile takeover to raid credit and sell assets. But the railroad's new management opted to accept a different friendly bid from the recently formed Blackstone Group, which of course most of our listeners will have heard of, uh, and also from Union Pacific, which needed to maintain its speedy and traffic-heavy link to Chicago. Union Pacific's shares uh, in this acquisition were non-voting. The result in 1989, instead of more employee ownership and potentially some true uh, 
employee management control. Uh, and also instead of corporate raider ownership was a Delaware corporation called Chicago and Northwestern Holdings Corporation, parent of Chicago and Northwestern Acquisition Corporation, controlling CNW Corp., the 1985 holding company that owned the 1972 railroad known as Chicago and Northwestern Transportation Company. For a few years after the takeover battle, the company was not publicly traded at all. Employee buyouts and workforce reductions continued, and computerization and electronic centralization of operations advanced rapidly in 1989. Hundreds more miles of track were sold off in the early 1990s to other nearby major railroads or short-line operators, or they were simply abandoned and turned into rail trails. In 1993, the railroad was 60% smaller by mileage than it was 21 years earlier, when the employee leverage takeover happened. Lower sulfur Wyoming coal became even more in demand with the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments on acid rain control. In March 1993, Union Pacific asked the Interstate Commerce Commission to convert its non-voting shares of the CNW into voting shares, representing 30% of the company, and to allow them to buy all remaining 70% of common stock in the railroad against the stated wishes of the smaller railroad's management which was not interested in being acquired. This was approved two years later in March 1995 with a purchase of about $1.1 billion from shareholders. By this point, the federal regulators had already approved the mega-merger of what is now BNSF Railway, and it was becoming more likely that all Western United States railroad operations at the Class 1 level were probably going to be consolidated into two or three railroads. The CNW management stopped fighting and accepted the reality of the situation. Union Pacific had already become an incredibly closely connected business partner even before participating in the defensive takeover in 1989, and the CNW was essential to their traffic between the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, but they were increasingly unhappy with operational handling at the interchange points, which was becoming slower and more expensive instead of more efficient and more cost-effective. Customers were happy with the consolidation because it did not represent a change in competition within a territory, but rather a faster and less expensive longer-haul service between the Great Lakes and points west. In fact, this end-to-end consolidation of the two railroads had been repeatedly favorably contemplated or recommended by both private sector analysts and government planners as far back as the 1890s and 1920s. One challenge that Union Pacific did not seem to fully appreciate before the CNW merger was that outside of their existing through-traffic partnerships, the CNW did actually have a lot of other regional commodity operations, especially in rural grain traffic, which many of the early retired CNW employees had specialized in dealing with. So those regional customers struggled with the new situation for a while. Almost immediately after acquiring the CNW, Union Pacific went on to announce its own mega-merger with Southern Pacific, basically completing the duopoly consolidation of the West. It would have been virtually impossible for an independent CNW to survive competition with either BNSF or UPSP, let alone both mega-mergers transpiring at the same time. So, kind of stepping away from, from CNW, let's go back to the concept of employee stock ownership plans as a whole, And let's talk about the man who almost single-handedly popularized these ESOPs. Uh, Louis Kelso, along with his academic friend Mortimer Adler, published the Capitalist Manifesto in 1958, extolling the virtues of employee stock ownership. In his book, he states that, one, workers can't make a living wage from their labor alone. 
Two, workers need expanded access to capital ownership to provide a second source of income. And three, employee stock ownership plans were the key to acquiring that capital. Uh, furthermore, he wrote, as technology makes labor more efficient, the need for worker ownership of capital becomes even more crucial to prevent catastrophic levels of income inequality. Uh, unlike Marx and his communist manifesto, uh, Kelso wanted to crank the capitalism dial up to 11 by promoting capital ownership for everyone. And um, he also uh, has some mechanisms in place or proposed mechanisms to keep capital from accumulating to the top, from consolidating into fewer and fewer hands. Um, so to do that, he proposed a quote unquote precipitously high top marginal income tax rate. And he also wanted to restructure the estate tax so that the rate depended on the wealth of the recipient rather than the size of the estate. Um, he was an interesting character. Uh, during his life, he courted Republicans and got a lot of approval from pro prominent Republicans such as Barry Goldwater, Gerald Ford, and Nixon. But he abhorred Reaganomics, and he correctly predicted that the concentration of wealth that uh, his economic plans uh, would put in place would have disastrous social consequences. And he also equated wealth inequality as a moral sin akin to genocide. Um, he was kind of an iconoclast. He didn't really have a lot of allies um, during his life, but um, he he kind of has some fans in, in the third way economic uh, philosophy. Um, and he uh, has some, some disciples that still continue to work for the Center for Economic and Social Justice um, think tanks. So he has some fans, but they're kind of marginalized. They're kind of um, not really taken very seriously. Um, and there have been uh, quite a few uh, ex explanations of drawbacks to um, Kelso's plans. And we've kind of seen those play out in um, cases like Enron or uh, the bankruptcy of United Airlines, where employees who have ownership stakes um, in the company lose all their wealth um, in one fell swoop when the company um, declares bankruptcy. So it, his proposal also kind of goes against the, the conventional wisdom of investment where you're supposed to have a diversified portfolio. So in the case of a bad thing happening, you, you don't lose all your wealth in one go. Um, so it's, he's a really interesting guy. I read uh, an article by Andrew W. Stumpf called uh, 50 Years of Utopia, a Half Century After Lewis Kelso's The Capitalist Manifesto, a look back at the weird history of the ESOP. And that was published in the Tax Lawyer, Volume 62, issue number two, published in winter of two, 2009. Um, and we will link to that in the show notes. Um, it, it was a very quick read, a very interesting read about Kelso's life and his his economic philosophy, and I would encourage everybody to to give it a look over. So as we can see, the Chicago Northwestern, in that sense, represents kind of a, a trendy thing that was happening in the early 1970s of this idea of, uh, you know, we can bring the employees in and they'll be the, the owners of the company and, and that kind of thing, but not really the management of the company. And then, of course, we see this evolve toward the model of, you know, lots of tech companies offering vested stock options as part of the employee compensation packages and so forth. But uh, what did you learn, Rachel, in terms of um, what, what does this railroad's example demonstrate about sort of the... Um, 
the how not all employee ownership of stock is created equal. Not everyone is a capitalist just because they own shares in a company. Uh, what what does this uh, help tell us about sort of the broader picture, uh, or what are some themes to think about here? Well, I think uh, stock ownership really has to go hand in hand with having uh, having a vote. I think uh, it started that you would have a vote that went along with your shares in the company, um, but I think that it, that quickly kind of ran fell by the wayside. And if you only own thirty percent of the of the stock, you can very quickly be outvoted by any majority stakeholder. So you really have to structure it and very specifically outline how that structure works to ensure that that workers do actually have a say. So I think the the Bernie model where he wants um, workers on the board, uh, workers like voting as a block, um, I think you would have to put those kind of guardrails in place um, to have it be effective and not just throwing money at workers and hoping that's enough and that they won't ask for more, ask for more like management, ask for more power in directing the company. Um, it, it, there really has to be the power that goes with it uh, more than just owning a piece of paper that says you own part of the company. And clearly, although the leveraged buyout by some employees did make them a lot of money, most employees didn't participate in this acquisition back in 1972. And the workers certainly at some, you know, some of the unions had encouraged people not to participate in it, because they felt like there were going to be a lot of management challenges to the workforce, which did indeed happen. Um, do you think yeah. it's interesting, though, that they, they did try this branding, like even putting it in the logos and stuff like that, saying, oh, this is employee owned when really, for the most part, that meant like the C-suite guys from the company? Yeah, I find that interesting. I I feel like a lot of it, a lot of that is used for branding nowadays. Um, I know like things like King Arthur Flower, uh, uh, Winco Foods, uh, a grocery store chain in the West, um, really hypes the employee-owned label. And I think it in a more um, direct-to-consumer product, I think that brand can be pretty effective. But it, it's interesting because with the railroad, I don't know if there's any attractiveness to, to that label per se. Like it, you're not the, – the individual consumer isn't looking at the railroad that their products are, are traveling by and being like, ooh, I, I want to – pick that one because they really don't have a say in how their goods are getting moved so yeah it's I mean, kind of interesting i guess one thing is to remember that newspapers were really big at the time and a lot of the chicago area newspapers really you know covered this as a buzzy event at the time so to that extent it's a pr thing essentially mm -hmm. uh you know and, and maybe is meant to blunt some of the criticism of the imminent closure of a bunch of rural lines in places like iowa and so forth mm -hmm. um but you know, that's also why we started looking as we were researching this episode, why we started looking at people like Kelso to try to figure out what's the broader context here, right? This isn't coming out of nowhere, this idea of, hey, some of the employees should buy some of the shares of the company um, because there is this sort of bigger thing happening in the cultural space around the U.S. economy in this period of the 
late 1950s through the 60s and into the early 1970s. And, and there's also tax changes that come in in the 1970s to facilitate and encourage employee ownership of stock options and things like that. Uh, and, and so, again, this is, there's, this is not an isolated thing in many ways. This is uh, demonstrative of what's going on. Yeah, and one interesting thing is Kelso had the ear of uh, Senator Russell Long, uh, Huey Long's son, um, senator in Louisiana. And so uh, Russell Long was a very powerful senator, and so he was able to get a lot of Kelso's ideas enacted. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a perfect translation of Kelso's ideas. So, for example, with the leveraged ESOP, um, the way Kelso envisioned it. Um, there would be that trust to buy the stocks for the employees and to pay it back. Um, it would be through the profits that, that the rise in, in price of, of the stock price um, would pay for the borrowing of the money to, to get that uh, stock. Um, and I think the way it got enacted in reality is what um, it was paid for through paycheck deductions. So obviously that wouldn't be very attractive if you're uh, a lower um, earning worker, you wouldn't want to see your paycheck cut even more. So I think uh, it wasn't, it, while Kelso had the ear of, of Senator Long, he couldn't really get his ideas enacted the way he envisioned them. And again, even if that had been, I mean, it's still, his dream was a capitalist dream fundamentally, right? This He was mm -hmm. not promoting some sort of worker's paradise or a, a worker's society buy in for the workers. He was still it, this was this was about getting buy in from the workers to kind of pay them off and keep them happy as capitalism continued to roar onward. Right. The way it was described to Senator Long was like uh, helping the have nots without stealing from the haves. So that's what made it attractive to him. And I think that's what made it attractive to a lot of like Republican um, uh, politicians like that despite the the high income tax rates, it still wasn't, quote unquote, stealing from the rich to give to the poor. It turns out, though, that they're not interested in that either, because they consider all of that future money and future income and future uh, wealth to also be theirs as a class, mm -hmm. the rich people, <laughs> right? I mean, that I think that's part of why you see the 1989 proposal from the unions to uh, really, you know, double down on and, and return to employee ownership in a, se in a more serious way, that's rejected in favor of Blackstone and Union Pacific, uh, which was a, it turned out to be a much more serious uh, fox into the hen house situation uh, within just a few years. Oops. Uh, but at the time, they clearly thought, well, that's not for the unions to have the unions shouldn't be able to decide how things go in the company and run the company so we can't possibly allow that um you know and and also i think it's interesting that the 1989 proposal as i understood it i could be misinterpreting this but as i understood it from the book the 1989 proposal was an institutional level purchase of shares by a consortium of the unions rather than the netco model from 1972 which was, yes, there was a company that was buying the shares on behalf of the employees, but the, it was on behalf of the employees that had invested in that company for the purpose of that acquisition as individuals. It's a very individualized uh, sort of version of employee ownership, right? Because they weren't making anyone buy into it. 
there was a minimum buy-in price that excluded a lot of people, whereas they could have said that it was a much smaller amount that you could, you know, subscribe to, uh, and instead of saying, you know, $500, and that there was a maximum, which quite a few people took advantage of, uh, but that tells you which type of people took advantage of it, which was to buy $100,000 worth of shares, um, right? And you even have to wonder, a couple of those union bosses that got those like, that's interesting that they had $100,000 lying around uh, to, to buy in on this uh, down payment for this purchase. And again, it was it's just a very individualized way of thinking about employee ownership um, as opposed to like a block ownership or a trust ownership on behalf of the workers. Yeah, it's interesting how it, how it all played out. Um, and to go back to Kelso, he died in 1991. So I think he was, he didn't, he probably didn't quite see how his vision got got changed over the years and how how much um, it deteriorated. And so I, I don't know if he still kind of uh, was ringing his bell up until the day he died. But, um, yeah, it's interesting how how the the dream just really did not live up to the reality or vice versa. <laughs> All right. Well, Rachel, we've learned a lot about the Chicago and Northwestern and why the so-called employee ownership is a little bit more hype than reality. Uh, but we've also learned a lot about the uh, broader landscape of the time period in which that happened. Yeah, it was, it was a very interesting topic this week. <laughs> 